0: Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore, I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're exploring one Midwestern folk legend with a reputation so big, it's entered American pop culture. That's thanks to one folk music artist, Gordon Lightfoot, and his 1976 hit single that immortalized the tale. Normally, when we think of shipwrecks, we tend to conjure an image of swashbuckling, one-eyed pirates daring the open seas pillaging unsuspecting merchant ships on their journeys home. Such tales from centuries ago are easy to find in the history books. These stories are prime material for feature-length movies. Think of Jack Sparrow and the Pirates of the Caribbean fame. There's a kind of romance attached to tales of the sea. There's something compelling in the primal conflict of man against nature at its barest. It takes a certain kind of courage for we humans... Creatures evolved to live on land, to throw caution to the wind, quite literally, and shove off into the waves. I'm talking about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was one glorious sun-filled day on November 17, 1975. This kind of pleasant weather was unusual for this late in the fall. It were as though God himself had blessed the crowd of more than 400 mourners who gathered at the Bayview Naval Armory in Toledo. They came together at this place, situated at the mouth of the Maumee River, to feel close to those souls who'd been lost. Just yards away from where they stood ran waters that would soon empty into Erie. There, the rain that had fallen on Ohio's fields and forests would eventually commingle with water flowing from lakes Huron, Michigan, and Superior. No doubt some of those waters had fallen from the angry clouds that had gathered over Lake Superior a week earlier. Bringing near-hurricane-force winds and waves as high as 35 feet, this tempest turned a seasoned crew and their behemoth ore freighter into a child's bathtub toy. As the crowd stared out across the sea, a lone bugler pointed his horn to the sky, playing taps, a kind of musical prayer of honor and grief. The names of 29 lost crewmen, read aloud, weighed heavy in the hearts of those gathered there. The Reverend Robert Armstrong, chaplain of the Toledo port, proclaimed that the crewmen were, quote, lost at sea, but found by God. Those who mourned weren't mourning a group of strangers, no. These mourners were sons and daughters, siblings, parents, and friends of the 14 Ohioans who comprised half of the crew of the Edmund Fitzgerald. With tear-stained faces, they watched as a ceremonial wreath was loaded onto a Coast Guard vessel. As it sailed down the Maumee, a docked freighter, the USS Toledo, tolled her bell 29 times. Her crew in full dress uniforms stood at attention. The vessel sailed on into Maumee Bay and then further into open waters before surrendering the wreath to the swells beneath her. The Edmund Fitzgerald, nicknamed the Toledo Express for her frequent stops in the port city, was the largest freighter on the lakes when she launched in 1958. Today, she holds claim as the largest Great Lakes shipwreck, resting in dark still waters at the bottom of Lake Superior. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of this maritime tragedy. Like I mentioned, it's inspired songs, documentaries, and entire museums for that matter. However, not many of us know of the deep connections this ship and her crew had to Ohio. Like most topics on Ohio Folklore episodes, I've learned new and surprising details during the course of my research. Details that offer special insight into our history, our hopes, and our vulnerabilities as Ohioans. So sit back in the captain's chair of your imagination and take a voyage with me. We'll be sailing back through a handful of decades to a not so distant time and place when we confronted nature's fury and our limitations in overcoming it. By early morning of November 9, 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald was moored at a railroad dock in Wisconsin and loaded with 26,000 tons of taconite pellets. She'd been contracted to haul the iron ore to Zug Island, an industrial complex just a little ways down the Detroit River. It was a voyage she'd taken hundreds of times, having frequented shipping lanes all throughout the Great Lakes in her then 17-year lifespan. By mid-afternoon, she'd been cleared to set sail, this despite gale warnings for the region that she was scheduled to sail straight into. Reaching out into open seas, the Fitz was spotted by another freighter, the Arthur M. Anderson, these two vessels had charted the same course on that day. The Anderson's captain, Jesse Cooper, radioed the fits on seeing her. He offered to follow behind, about 15 miles in tow, as the two freighters ventured into graying skies and foaming waves. They'd keep frequent radio contact as a measure of safety and support. The going was slow as the vessels sailed onward. Each captain kept close measure of the wind and the waves and made reports to the other on what they were facing. By 3.30 the next morning, November 10th, Captain McSorley of the Fitzgerald radioed the Anderson, noting he'd sustained topside damage, including a fence rail down and vents lost to the waves. Worst of all, the Fitz had started to list, a clear sign the hull was taking on water. The good news was that the pumps were in working order, and the captain was sure the list would soon be corrected. Yet half an hour later, Captain McSorley would radio again to inform the Anderson that they'd lost both radars and were sailing blindly into angry waves. Captain Cooper promised to keep the Fitzgerald advised of her position. Around 5.30 that night, the Fitz made radio contact with the Avaforce, a Swedish ocean freighter. As her captain asked for an update on the weather conditions, the Fitz's captain McSorley was heard screaming for his crew to stay off the deck. After a quick apology for his lack of composure, he explained to the AvaForce that their list had worsened considerably, that they'd lost both radars, and that they'd been taking on heavy water. It was one of the worst seas the captain had ever seen in his 44-year career. By 7 p.m., the Anderson was still following the Fitz and had closed the distance to about 10 miles. She'd been struck by two monster waves that had damaged a lifeboat beyond repair. Checking in once more, Captain Cooper asked how the Fitz's crew was holding up. We're holding our own, came Captain McSorley's reply. It was the last word anyone would hear from the ill-fated ship, now lost in legend. Within thirty minutes of her last radio transmission, the Edmund Fitzgerald disappeared both visually and on radar. Although the Anderson was only ten miles behind her, the catastrophic event that led to her sinking must have happened with such a speed and force that it wasn't even possible for the crew of the Anderson to observe it. It's assumed the Fitz had entered a squall, which shielded it from radar detection as she sank. It was dark, and a storm was raging. No doubt the Anderson's crew was preoccupied with battling the storm for themselves. Within moments of recognizing that the Fitz had disappeared, the Anderson radioed the Coast Guard. They responded that they had no ships available to send, as countless requests for emergency assistance had been made by other vessels. They advised the crew of the Anderson to begin searching for survivors as best they could. Exhausted and battered from the storm, the Anderson crew agreed to make a rescue attempt. Sailing on toward the last spot where they'd seen the Fitz, they'd find two empty, damaged lifeboats among Superior's lashing waves and torrential skies. In the days that followed the Fitz's sudden disappearance in Canadian waters near Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, a frenzied search for her remains ensued. Coast Guard officials openly acknowledged that hopes— were slim. Lake Superior has long had a reputation of laying claim to victims for good. Without a life vest, those who drowned beneath the frigid surface sank like a rock. With temperatures nearing freezing at the bottom, bodies rarely rise to the surface on their own. In all likelihood, the remains of her crew rested on the lake bed, along with 26,000 tons of iron ore. Six months after her sinking in May 1976, the remains of the Edmund Fitzgerald would finally be found under 530 feet of Canadian waters. Her final resting place was discovered by an unmanned naval recovery vehicle. 253 feet of her bow is buried deep into the lake bed. A 27-foot draft mark shows the force it carried on finally hitting the bottom. The stern, Now a separate 276-foot segment lies upside down, nearly two football fields away. 200 feet of the ship's midsection is missing, presumed broken to pieces in the violence of the sinking and washed away. Thick sheets of steel that once lined the ship's outer hull are torn and crumpled like paper. The exact cause of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is still debated and remains a mystery, but the legend is known the world over. Few Ohioans are aware, however, that half the crew called our state home. These men, now names included on the list of 29 sailors, had lives that were rich and complex. Their stories have been swept up in the monumental events of their deaths. For a good number of them, I discovered details of their lives that proved poignant and, at points, heartbreaking. It's for that reason that I'll devote the next segment to the lives of these Ohioans. Come, hear their stories. Born in Leeds, Ontario 1912, Captain Ernest McSorley would emigrate to Audensburg, New York with his family when he was only 11 years old. Being so close to the St. Lawrence Seaway, he became enamored with the nautical lifestyle. He would take his first job at sea as a deckhand, at the ripe old age of 18 years. Through years of hard labor and a willingness to work his way up through the ranks, he eventually became the youngest captain of the freighters on the lake. By 1972, he'd been given the company's flagship the Fitzgerald. Since the ship frequented Toledo Harbor, he decided to make the city his land based home. Around 1943, he and his wife would purchase the house that still stands at 4302 West Bancroft Street. He didn't spend that much time there, however. He loved the sea so much that he was known to stay on board even during periods of sickness, staying out to sea as much as 10 months of the year. When the fits went down in 1975, 63-year-old McSorley's career had spanned 44 years. He had planned to retire at the end of the season. One of McSorley's closest friends and neighbors, a Mr. Henry Merce, Jr., was quoted in the press describing the captain as, quote, always in control. He was never in trouble because he could always take care of himself. Merce knew McSorley as a serious and responsible leader. He didn't drink, he didn't gamble. He'd been one of the finest people Merce ever knew. 50-year-old Eugene O'Brien served as the Fitz's wheelsman. Those who knew him well called him the Great Lakes Gambler on account of his skills as a card shark, passing his leisure time on board by scoring wins against his shipmates. This sailor called Toledo home. His nautical career had saved him from a life of working in the city's famous glass factories. All told, he had navigated ships up and down the Great Lakes for about 30 years. He'd survived at least three hellacious storms before that fateful night in November 1975. A close friend of his was quoted in the press as saying that he, quote, never expressed any fear on the lakes and that he always looked at the happy side of things. O'Brien was scheduled to work the evening shift that fateful night and was likely inside the pilot house when she sank. He was set to begin a week's vacation following what turned out to be the Fitz's final voyage. 59-year-old William Spangler, also of Toledo, served as one of the ship's watchmen's It was his duty to keep surveillance of the seas, staying vigilant as to the risks posed by smaller vessels and other dangers. He also had to ensure the navigational instruments ran with accuracy to maintain safety and security of all on board. By 1975, Spangler had enjoyed a 25-year career on the lakes, but that wasn't the most remarkable chapter in his life. Before working on freighters, Spangler had served 15 years in the U.S. Navy. He'd enlisted directly after graduating high school in the small northwestern Ohio village of Archbold. On December 7, 1941, he'd been stationed on the USS Maryland as a boatswain in Hawaii's Pearl Harbor. She'd been anchored next to the USS Arizona, the ship whose remains now lie in monument to the devastating Japanese attack. Spangler miraculously survived the bombs and the fire. He managed to extract himself from the wreckage when so many of his shipmates did not. He'd spent some time in a wheelchair, nursing himself back to health before setting sail once more on the open sea. Spangler survived the worst men can thrust upon other men, only to succumb to the fates doled by Mother Nature. Two of the youngest men lost were from Ashtabula, Carl Peckle, and Paul Ripa. In their early 20s, they each held great promise. Peckle was a gifted musician, placing first chair in his high school band as a clarinetist. But don't let that fool you. In true 1970s style, he was also in a rock band with friends. As much passion as he had for music... He just couldn't fake the brash, rock-and-roll persona people expected of him. He was quick to blush with the slightest bit of attention turned toward him. Those who knew him and loved him noted his gentle manner and quiet ways. Peckle's position on board was that of a watchman. He'd taken the job solely as a means to save up for college. The work was steady, and it paid well. Unlike so many of the veteran sailors... He wasn't enamored of the sea. It was a means to an end for him. Sadly, an end he never got the chance to explore. Peckle and his fellow Ashtabulan, Paul Rippa, visited their families when the Fitz docked in their lakeside hometown. 22-year-old Rippa was a deckhand. He'd recently transferred to the Fitz from the Ashland. He had completed his freshman year at Wilmington College and played halfback on the football team. He had planned on a career in nursing, but he had heard the sea calling him. He'd left college to sign up for the Merchant Marines. He was a serious man of strict faith. While off-duty, his crewmates would often spot him with Bible in hand, reading the word with great intention. Perhaps his faith was a comfort to him on that final day as the waves overcame them. 22 year old Bruce Hudson was a deckhand from North Olmsted near Cleveland. He was a student at The Ohio State University in Columbus and had taken the job to help pay tuition. He dreamed of becoming a journalist. He was looking forward to the close of the shipping season so he could return to the books. Although he was a serious student, he still knew how to have fun. He loved anything on wheels. The income provided by his work on the fits made him the envy of his peers. They pined for his 1974 cherry red Dodge Challenger. He'd had the car packed and ready to go on disembarking from this final voyage. He and a crewmate were set for a road trip to California. As a prized souvenir, Bruce Hudson would take home an old chart that plotted the Fitz's previous route through the lakes. His mother recalled seeing it lying on the dining room table on the night she'd gotten word that the ship had found trouble. She was later quoted saying that, The morning that I heard the news on my way to work, I thought that it couldn't be the Fitzgerald. It's just too big. But unfortunately, they said it was the Edmund Fitzgerald. And there were no survivors. On describing one of their last conversations, she would later tell a reporter, Somehow, we ended up talking about the danger of his motorcycle riding. I remember he said he would never die on the motorcycle. He said when he died, it would be in a way that the whole world would know it. The ship's 62-year-old cook was Toledoan Robert Rafferty. Like all good cooks, he was jolly, kind, and a bit rotund. He wore a fedora on his bald head, and was just as at ease cooking for his small family as for a crew of nearly 30 strapping men. He'd learned the trade from his own father, who'd also been a cook for the ships on the Great Lakes. The Fitz was not Rafferty's ship. But by an awful twist of fate, the Fitz's regular cook had to stay ashore on account of bleeding stomach ulcers. Three weeks before the disaster struck, the shipping company had called up Rafferty and offered extra compensation if he agreed to transfer to the Fitz. He wasn't too keen on the idea, but eventually accepted it. He'd be home for a good stretch after finishing this last voyage and could spend some quality time with family. The last correspondence he'd sent home to his wife was a postcard that read, Should be home by the 8th or 9th. However, nothing is certain. 40-year-old Russell Haskell served as the ship's second assistant engineer. He hailed from Millbury, a small village southeast of Toledo. Sailing ran in the Haskell family veins. His brother Eugene had recently retired from a position aboard the Fitz and had actually gotten Russell the job. This poor man was racked with guilt on learning the awful news. In truth, he had no need for the guilt. As both sons had been following in their father's footsteps, he had also retired from a career on the lakes. 58-year-old Fremont man Ralph Walton served as the ship's oiler, meaning he operated and maintained the ship's propulsion systems. Many members of his extended family had made their livings staffing freighters on the lakes. Ralph, or Grant as he preferred, had been telling his wife for the previous two years of his planned retirement. Sadly, the 20-year veteran of Great Lakes shipping fame would never get to experience it. Shortly before the disaster, he'd received a transfer from another freighter, the Ashland. In a newspaper article published two days after the tragedy, his wife acknowledged that she had lost hope for his safe return. This was his life. He loved that boat. It was his second home. The painful grief over the sudden loss of the Edmund Fitzgerald and her crew, was keenly felt in the days and weeks following the tragedy. That's of course to be expected. What's truly unique about this disaster, however, is the way in which such grief endures. Yet today, when reminders of the wreck surface, a collective sad nostalgia washes over us. Memorial services are still held on the anniversary of the wreck. Mourners gather yet again, to remember the sailors, each man with hopes, dreams, and loving family members. Many were Ohioans, some young, some experienced veteran sailors in the twilight of their careers. They were our fathers, husbands, brothers, and friends, and will forever remain so. What is it about this unique piece of maritime history that has elevated this story to legendary status. How has the tale taken root in our collective unconscious as part and parcel of who we are? There's something deeply meaningful about the narrative that speaks to the way in which we view ourselves. Every good piece of folklore inspires this kind of introspection. There's something elemental about our daring nature as humans, about our willingness to test the fates It's this kind of courage in the face of uncertainty that resonates with us all. It grabs hold of our imaginations and our own desire to test the limits of our endurance. We admire those with the fortitude to push onward into the unknown. None of us know when life's next storm will envelop us. The most we can do is sail onward our dreams propelling us forward. We must wrestle with whatever the fates provide. May we do it with brave hearts and passion for the task. This concludes today's episode on The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please consider writing a review on your chosen podcast platform. You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com, And on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.